Will sound, Scotty. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! Stinking Paws Podcast. Good morning. Happy New Year. It's our first episode of 2020. First episode since, I'm thinking, a sort of October, November time where we celebrated our 200th movie review, which was rocky. Now, Christmas and family commitments and other things mean that Paul and Liam aren't here today. Uh, so one of the joys of this podcast is that I can actually invite... Some intelligent guests with some intelligent conversation, and today is no exception. He he honestly thought I was going to go somewhere completely different with that for a minute there. It's my co-host from the Real Britannia podcast, it's Stephen. Hello, mate. Hello, mate. And and because this is stinking pause, I will say Happy New Year. If it was um, our our Real Britannia, it would probably be appropriate to say um, Happy Easter, because that's how far ahead we are in recording episodes. Yeah, Gregory's Uh, Girl went out this weekend, and I look back, we recorded that in October. I think it yeah. was. <laughs> uh, got three months ahead. Yeah, we got we got about six or seven episodes in the bank as well, still to go out. So, chasing our tail, always chasing our tail with Real Britannia, with stinking paws. We are going to be bang up to date. We're recording this on Sunday, the twelfth of January. I'm going to assume that I'll have this out by the following weekend. You can be as current as you want, mate. You can actually, you know. You can talk about the election, you can talk about Brexit, whatever you want to talk about, and it'll all be relevant. I think think both of those subjects are one best left, uh, really. Um, Yeah, we we offend enough people as it is without having to resort to that. It's not going to be fun, is it, no? So we'll, you know, we'll talk talk instead about, you know, murder and um, and plots. One-armed men, yeah. One-armed men in dead-end western towns, yeah. (laughs) Well, if you haven't guessed, it's it's Bad Day at Black Rock, which is your choice today. One of the joys, I say, apart from having the intelligent conversation, is that I said to you, do you know what, let's just get back to the spirit of what Stinking Paws was all about when Charlie and I first started it, which was some of the more real classic golden age era Hollywood type movies. And you've come up with a gem, mate, Bad Day at Black Rock. I mean... The reveal, when we reveal to each other at the end of the show what each person is going to, you know, present to the other as their movie, I think you could tell the joy in my voice when you said that title. Yeah, and as I'd said that, you know, I'd wanted um, a long time ago when Charlie was still on the podcast every every time um, for you two to review it because I, I, I knew you'd both enjoy it and yeah. I wanted to actually... I suspected at that time, going back that far, that Charlie probably wouldn't have seen it. So uh, yeah. as a new film, I expected you would have done because uh, I know you've got experience like that, which is why it didn't surprise me that you were looking forward to reviewing it and you knew it well because um, you know, I know your appreciation of film. Yeah, I thought it was long before time, really, that it should have been brought up on, on your show. So here it is now, eventually. And here it is. Here's the trailer. We'll be back after this. Trailer. Trailer. Somebody's always looking for something in this part of the West. This place is our West, and I wish they'd leave us alone. Four years ago, something terrible happened here. We did nothing about it. Nothing. this guy anyway never heard of him that's what he says checklist no john j mccready no listing no record no information nothing bad day at black rock 
including Lee Marvin and Robert Ryan and Francis, Dean Jacker, Walter Brennan, John Erickson, Ernest Borgnine, Spencer Tracy. It'll be better if you went out there and got done with it. What can he find out? liable to be the hardest ten dollars you ever earned in your life they're gonna kill you with no hard feelings now, nobody like mccready can raise a pretty big sting the point is who'd miss a nobody like mccready if he just uh say disappeared caught on a road with no escape one man against the whole town stops at every turn Stopped from finding out the truth of what happened on that bad day at Black Rock. A day from which there is no escape. One day you will never forget. Bad day at Black Rock. Okay, bad day at Black Rock. Released here, according to IMDb, released in Japan on the 15th of May 1955, which is interesting they've chosen that release date to be highlighted, which we will talk about. Directed by John Sturgis, starring, of course, Spencer Tracy. Now, look at this cast list, right? It's amazing. Isn't it amazing? You've got Robert Ryan, Dean Jagger, Anne Francis, Walter Brennan, Ernest Borgnine, Lee Marvin, and, and four or five other sort of bit part characters. Who would you put above the title there? You know, it's just an incredible cast list. Give us the synopsis first, and we'll go head first into this, mate. Well, the, the incredibly brief synopsis um, <laughs> is um, a one-armed stranger comes to a tiny western town possessing a terrible past they want to keep secret by violent means, if necessary. So it's it's <clears throat> not revealing a lot there. It doesn't give a lot away, mate, does it? Um, but... The you know the synopsis is that it is you know this man comes comes into town they don't know who he is they're incredibly suspicious but they 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 do have something to hide and they don't know why he wants to know what he wants to know and it's an amazingly tight film in a lot of ways and it's quite standout in in my mind for being a, a collision in a good way mm-hmm. between. A western and a film noir. It is it's its own genre in a way because yeah. I was trying to work this out. Is it neo noir western or how would you describe it? You can't pinpoint this down. It is like a modern day western. Actually, it's neo western noir, isn't it? I think yeah. it's probably the best way of describing it. And it doesn't outstay its welcome. It's a very punchy, just under ninety minutes, based on a short story. You'd think on paper. If you look at the synopsis and sort of get into the swing of the movie, it's almost like a B-movie plot. There's no real sort of action set. There are a few action set pieces, but there's no real... It's not an action blockbuster. It is a a one-set drama, almost. You know, just peels off to a couple of locations here and there. 1955, smack bang in the middle of the era of Hollywood where it's competing with TV. So you've got Technicolor, you've got widescreen cinemascope, and you can see, looking at this movie from the cinematography part part of it, you can see why John Sturgis was picked to direct Magnificent Seven and Great Escape. Because if he can handle a lesser movie, I'm not saying this is, is a bad movie, but a lesser movie, almost B-movie like this, and come up with something so visually striking, he's going to be your man for your blockbusters like your Magnificent Seven, it's obvious. Yeah. I mean, this is this is... Despite it being a western, for you know, rarity in in some of the western type things, where it's it doesn't take um, much advantage of the epic scenery you, mm. you, you sometimes get, um, and it also you know it doesn't have the the large set pieces like you say with the the gunfights or um, whatever. The this is is very sparse in what it shows and and the number of people in it. And the town itself, I think, is is depopulated purposefully, um, in a way to to show that sparseness and um, a, you know a place that is on the edge of yeah the of remoteness of it mm. yeah the remoteness of it yeah and I think that the, you know this is as you say the fact that he could do do what he's done with the sort of less is more element there 
meant that when he had a blockbuster, you know, level of cast and and budget and scenery and etc., that so that that was more explosive because he'd, he he had the skills to to make so much out of so little. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's so just you're right there about his you know in going on to the other things. It's incredible. Like I say, this is almost you would put this second on a double bill of you know of screenings at a cinema. It would not be your main feature, but at the same time. It has received classic status. Going back to what you said earlier, you know, you were hoping that, you know, my history with the movie would generate some conversation. And I'm going to let you into a secret. I only watched it for the first time about three years ago. Oh, right. So about the time you were thinking of bringing it to Stinking Paws as a guest all those years ago, I probably hadn't seen it. Wow. Right. Obviously fully aware of it. Yeah. I've seen bits and pieces of it. We know the classic scene of Spencer Tracy getting off of the train, you know, and, and the whole, you know, visual cinema scope aspect of the movie. It looks great. It's a beautiful looking movie. So I watched it three years ago and I was hoping myself to review it on Stinking Paws, but didn't know when to bring it to the table. So you did that job for me, thankfully. And we're going to talk about Today's it. Today is the day. Today yeah. is the day. Let's, let's start with Spencer Tracy. I mean, I've, I've always admired Spencer Tracy. I know you're a bit of a fan as well. I love him as an actor. But three years ago, I think it was this particular movie that really made me sort of sit up and notice him. I've always been aware of him. You know, it's Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn, you know, the classic double act. But after watching this about three years ago, I went back and I took a look at some of his other movies that I sort of missed on my list of shame, you know. And, and one thing I sort of concluded, although... I mean, you can contradict me on this or, or agree, but although I think Spencer Tracy's quite highly regarded as an actor, he's up there with the Hollywood greats, you know, he always... Yeah. You know, I don't think he genuinely gets the recognition he deserves. He's never mentioned in the same breath as, say, Cary Grant, Jimmy Stewart, Gregory Peck, Errol Flynn, or, sorry, not Errol Flynn, Clark Gable, whatever. Those, when you think golden age Hollywood... Yes, you're, you're right. Yeah, he's, he's, the, the, he's not one of that list, is he? He's got name recognition, obviously, still even now. But you're right that the the recognition of him, um, rather than the recognition of his talent as an actor, I don't think there is it there, and he's he's not recognised for um, his ability and the, the you know, to some extent the variety of his roles. I mean, I think I first encountered him um, with uh, I think it was something. That wasn't really archetypal for him. It was something later in it. Um, guess he was coming to dinner. Guess he was coming to dinner, was, I was going to say, yeah. Um, but obviously, like yourself, I, I have in recent years gone back and seen him in, in things, you know, stretching back into the 30s as, yeah. as well, the 40s and stuff. And the quality of his ability to, to have the, the brooding performances and in, in particularly in film noir is definitely not appreciated as much as in, he should be. Um, for the, the quality of, of his acting um, and what he has added to, to the history of, of cinema, really, mm. because he, he, you know, I think him, along with a few others, you know, like James Cagney and, and a few others, mm. did actually, in some ways, change change the way in which cinema was actually, you know, acting was viewed as it, as it been rather than it being you're just going and saying some lines on a screen and, and, and pretending to be somebody, you were really inhabiting the, the actual part. Yeah. And and I know, you know, in his later years, he was very much a, a single take man that was um, not wanting to have close-ups and was sort of uh, was taking it a bit easier in some respects as far as his performances in, in, in some ways, or maybe he just perfected his, his acting ability to the level where it was unnecessary to do all the other things, but I think him and a few others brought that change in um, as far as what acting was, especially you know cinema acting. And yeah. I don't think he's appreciated for it. No, I think I think the problem is he's, he's not regarded as a classic example of a Hollywood leading man. It's hard to pigeonhole where you would put Spencer Tracy. Is he a comedic actor? Is he a straight dramatic actor? You know, he's, he's certainly not an action hero. He's not Errol Flynn. He's not a romantic lead like Clark Gable or Cary Grant. But I think what you actually do get with him is he's, he's all round dependable, for the for want of a better phrase. He's, he's dependability. You you just know that you're not going to get a bad performance if it's um, a Spencer Tracy movie. Yeah, 
and that's that's absolutely true. I mean, he you know, he's not necessarily carrying an entire film if it's if it's got no weight to it. He's he can be a fine performance in it and and lift it from being um, completely rubbish. But he himself can provide great performances, but he doesn't overshadow anything else that's going on in a in a film usually. Although you know, in this one we've got some incredibly fine performances from the other people you you listed who mm. normally would you know normally you'd expect we used to seeing Lee Marvin or Ernest Borgnine or, or anything has has been you know the, the the top of the bill like you say yeah um, and thankfully this was a, a stage where you know those people were were looking at Spencer Tracy uh, most of them and and going yeah he's he's the governor as it were Could you know and, yeah. and, and it's Ernest was saying that uh, I think there's some quote from him saying that all the way through the the production he he always referred to him as Mr Tracy um, <laughs> because he, he was in such awe of him. That's that's the the, the difference that there is um, in the sort of this era where his his career is starting to, to to win and these other people are coming up, but they were influenced by him um, to become the actors that they are, um, and that's quite amazing, really. I think he's an actor's actor um, more than he is, um, a, you know, a, an audience's actor in that sense. That's an interesting comment. Yeah, I could agree with that. You saying about Ernest Borgnine and being at the start of his career? Actually, this is what 1955, right? And again, if ever the word dependable applied to an actor, I think you can apply it to Ernest Borgnine as well. Yeah. Um, you always knew what you were going to get from an Ernest Borgnine performance. Not that that's a bad thing. It's more like something that's a bit reassuring, knowing that, yes. you know, you know you're in for something good if Ernest Borgnine's going to be in it. Even, even some of the tackiest sort of disaster movies he was in, you just know that Ernest Borgnine's performance is going to be great. And, of course, 1955, a massive, very important year for Ernest Borgnine because he starred in Marty this year, which was the movie that won him the Academy Award for Best Actor. Yeah, at the expense of Spencer Tracy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when you see him in this, in the same year, knowing that, I don't know if it was filmed before or after, whatever, but literally just on the horizon, there is a Best Actor Oscar waiting for him. The man was acting for over 60 years. I mean, I think he was even a voice in SpongeBob SquarePants towards the end of his career as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and obviously, my first experience of him was through, you know, Airwolf in the. 80s. Of course, yeah. You know, there you go. Um, <laughs> and, and that kind of thing, and and he had a, a stereotype that he kind of played in in number of ways, which was, you know, but he still had the acting ability. It wasn't like that was the only thing he could do. That was just what he got a bit, a bit pigeonholed with. Yeah. But it was dependable, like you say, and his performance in this is. is completely fitting with all of that you know it, it, i know there's a couple of different archetypes of characters in this this film out of the small cast that there is um but he very much fits in with what you what anybody who has any awareness of him would expect him to do if you're given the list of list of the archetypes in there and you asked which one would he play mm. you know, most people who have any awareness of him would, would would get it right every time of course they would um, yeah. that you know he's, he's, he's playing the the sort of the the bully and it's his his you know his performance in this along with you know virtually all the cast I can't think of any bad performances in this at all. No. Um, but they're people who normally would be the star or would be the ones that you you pinpoint and saying oh well obviously you know the rest of the cast were good but he was especially good you know um, and in this it's it's difficult to pull out the the singular performances in that sense because of the the quality of who's in it. And yeah, it is a, just a bit of a, a strangeness with what he went on to do and and what, what history did with Oscars and such yeah. like. Yeah, it's 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 an incredible cast, as we said right at the very top of the show. And before we even get to the plot, I mean, let's briefly briefly mention Lee Marvin. Even at this point in his career, I think he's got at least a couple of dozen TV and movie appearances under his belt. It's just a sort of a great indication of what that man is going to go on to be, because Lee Marvin is just so... His performances are always so laid back, so effortless. That's the word I'm looking for, I think. It's just an effortless performance from Lee Marvin. He always sort of gave that appearance that he wasn't actually acting. That's Lee Marvin at the end of the day. Yeah, he's a kind of laconic, um, tough guy. Mm. That, you know, the, the, there was no... No um, premeditation behind. He was just sort of not really thinking, and was just you know this instinctual tough guy um, performance. 
and it, and as you say, it wasn't contrived, it wasn't didn't come across as being acting, and that again gets seen throughout a, a career of, of performances that would normally see him being the, the top of the bill, but um, in this one, he's he's one of one of uh, an, an excellent cast. Yeah, but it's, yeah, he's a great actor, and and again, you know, he went on to some fantastic things and shaped um, a certain amount of influence over over history himself. Just want to mention, it's almost almost like one of those all male movies, a bit like The Thing or Twelve Angry Men, where there's no female members of the cast apart from dear old Anne Francis, who is probably best known for appearing in the title song to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. That people don't remember her movies at all. Yeah, it's like Anne Francis stars in Forbidden Planet, um, which, which I have seen to be honest. But yes, Forbidden Planet, yeah, uh, Leslie Nielsen. That's the one, and and. Anne Francis is just the token female character in this. Yeah. She has no majorly important part to play. I'm not saying it's eye candy. It's just this could have got away with being an all-male cast. Yeah, there, there was. I don't think there was really anything, any import put upon um, her being female. It could well have been her being the sibling of, of, of the hotel clerk yes it could well have been you know his his, his younger brother or, or something other so there was still that sort of feeling of protection and uh, you know towards him um but it, it, it they happened to cast it as a female and whether they decided they had to have a female in it somewhere so that, that they would give that part over there was no it wasn't like it was um a love interest so that way like, it was in there yeah. or anything like that. There, was, yeah. there was no element of that of, of sort of shoehorning in something to make to have a purpose for her to be female. Yeah. Um, which, you know, fine, you know, fine performance yeah. from her, but, um, so not, not knocking her in any way, but, um, it, it was, it was a very male movie. Yeah. Um, from, you know, start to finish. Um, absolutely. Yeah. It could have got away with being an all male cast if, if they'd yeah. have been brave enough to do it. You know, I think that's probably what it was. They weren't brave enough to commit themselves to something that didn't have a female lead in there somewhere. Let's talk about the plot. I mean, it, it starts off... The opening credit sequences, instantly I thought, do you know what, that's almost Hitchcock. That's almost something like North by Northwest or one of those 50s period Hitchcock movies with the big sort of brass music coming through and the you know the excitement of the train steaming through the desert. I don't know who did the music, actually. I'm going to have to have a little look in a second and find out because... I don't know. I think there was a... I think there was a thing about the fact that oh. originally they wanted to have no music at all. Yes, hang on, it was Andre Previn. There we go. Is that what they were saying? No music at all throughout the thing? To there, make was, it... there was a tussle, I think, between the, the, the studio executives and, and those actually making the film. The idea was they were just going to have the atmospheric effects rather than having any, any music in it. I think there was you know test screenings that might have borne out one or the other. I mean, it was the test screening that um, changed the beginning to have that introduction of the um the train um coming in because that wasn't in the initial screening it wasn't the train um that shot that amazing epic shot sort of thing like mm. you say is 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 very hitchcockian now seen as of the train coming in and the way in which that that is shot almost oncoming and stuff although technically the they they didn't do that they did it um i don't know if you know this um it was in, it decided to they couldn't do that shot because it was incredibly dangerous to try and have um, the aerial shooting um, from a helicopter of a train, like speeding towards it, and um, oh, is this the thing they reversed the yeah, they did it backwards footage so, that was in the yeah. helicopter. They filmed so, it in a helicopter and they had to reverse it because it was a safer yeah. way of filming it. Yes, so they had so they had the train going backwards and the helicopter following it, and then they just reversed reversed it, and that um, created that amazing effect. <laughs> um, That's probably why it stands out then, because it's probably yeah. just a little bit jarring. It's probably not quite. Your your brain is registering that that's not quite an accurate. Well, maybe there's maybe the dust that's been been blown off it is blowing off in the wrong direction. It could, but I'm gonna have to go but, and back and have a but, look. Now. Um, but it is a like you say, it's Hitchcockian for for want of a better phrase of of that that introduction. Yeah, that just create, reminded and me. It creates mm. that impact. It it creates a sense of um, arrival. Yes. Um, at the beginning of the film, um, which I think it needed that that to be um, emphasised because of the fact that, as it says in the film, you know, a train hasn't stopped at this dead-end town for four years. <laughs> yeah. So 
they needed to to have something that really punched. Um, it's it's an you. event. That, yeah, that, that this was an event, and yeah. this was something that was large thing for the town, and um, that it absolutely does it. It starts off to do that, and all the way through, I mean, it, it, it fulfills everything it wants to fulfill. But that right at the start, I think, is is an amazing way to to actually get that across to us. Yeah, to yeah, and it's. It, highlighting the fact that we're sort of associating this as a, a neo-western as we're calling it Tracy's arrival at the station is a bit like those old westerns where the stranger walks into the saloon and every head turns around the piano stops playing or whatever you could see people stop rocking in their chairs or coming looking out of windows because it's like hello the train stopped yeah it's one of these you know as I said there's kind of the archetypal characters within the sort of six people that are in this and you know this mystery tough guy yeah as you know something that's sparking off why the, the story is happening absolutely completely artive it, that sets that out straight away that as soon as he steps off the first interaction he has with the 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 railway clerk that is instantly set yeah. you've got no doubt in your mind this is the mystery tough guy <laughs> and that the, the town is instantly on edge um, just from the one guy, you can tell that they, you know, there's 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 something um, going on. Mm. There's, mis- there's mysteries out there, and, and to and add, this, to and, this, and this isn't going to go well. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, it's not going to go well. And to, and to add to that sense of mystery, he's got one arm. You know, his sleeve is tucked in his pocket. Has he got one arm? Yeah. Is he holding onto a gun? They're not too sure. Is he a, is he a police officer? Is he because he's not giving anything away at this point? It's just like well, I've just bundled into town I need a room I need to hire a car and that's all they know and it's like well hang on a minute normally you know four years ago we might have had a travelling salesman pass through here and he was quite quite amiable you know and he would you know answer all our questions we don't know nothing about you but also what we don't realise at this time is that they're going to be wary because of events that have happened previously which we're unaware of at this point and yeah. we've also got to point out this was made in '55, but it's set in late 1945, isn't it? After the war has finished. Yeah, just just after the war's finished. Yeah. So what happens after that? Basically, I think he heads towards the hotel room. People are a little bit suspicious of him. We we meet Ernest Borgnine, who's you know, as you say, becomes this Ernest Borgnine tough guy type character, the laconic, laid back Lee Marvin, who's having none of it. He wants to get to the bottom of it. Um, we're missing one major character, which is Robert Ryan, because he's not actually in the in the centre of the town at the moment. Walter Brennan, we haven't mentioned Walter Brennan. Now, oh yeah, gosh, yeah, he he plays Doc. Now, I didn't realise he wasn't just a doctor; he was the vet and the undertaker. Yes, that, that was. I think <laughs> I there was some reference to um, ending up on his own slab, but there was also a reference <laughs> as well as as um, becoming one of his customers or something like yeah. that. Owning the hearse, um, which appears later on in, That's in right, yeah. very briefly, the world weary doctor mm. sort of archetype, and that 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 interaction again is is you know the sort of different levels of character. I mean, you know, one he he's kind of a character where he he, he can't help filling a silence by saying something, whereas and and so all that Spencer Tracy, the you know McCready has to do is just. Just say one thing, and and then he gets a, a, a sort of spillage as a yeah. reply. And if he just keeps quiet, there'll be more coming out of it rather than him. It's quite easy for him to to draw draw that information out from him. But it that's the whole thing through this the 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 slow reveal through guarded dialogue from both sides. Yeah. We slowly find out who McCready is, the mystery man, and we slowly find out what the the thing is with the characters and the mystery in the town, but. Mm. Again, as you say, a great performance from Walter Brennan yeah. um, in there. Well, more, more used to seeing him in sort of John Wayne classic westerns, aren't we, rather than these modern-day productions. And you're quite right. I think MacReady actually learns more through observation than through conversation. Yeah. He, he can see how twitchy these, you know, these town folk are. He, he knows that there's something wrong. I mean, the basic premise is he's looking... For a Japanese guy called Kokomo, no, Komoko, isn't it? The Japanese-American yeah. guy. And he finds out that he was interned in one of those Japanese prisoner of war camps just after Pearl Harbor. That's what he gets told, yeah. That's what he gets told. So he goes to see the sheriff, who's played by Dean Jagger, again, dependable Dean Jagger, who's alcoholic, 
yeah. um, asleep in his jail cell. Obviously, he probably doesn't do a lot of business there in this yeah, sort of one-horse yeah, yeah. town. The alcoholic sheriff, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Take, take the box, yeah. The sheriff is in fear of the Robert Ryan character. Robert Ryan runs the town, basically. He's the kingpin, isn't he? Yes. Yeah. Procrede is, is told by everybody to get out of town, basically. There's nothing here for him, but... Um, the doc sort of reveals that Komoko is actually dead. Uh, you know, literally a few minutes after being told that he's been interred in the in the Japanese prisoner of war camp. But we know something's going on because the sheriff wasn't fully aware of it, was he, at the time when we when we first get the reveal here? No, I mean I know there's mention that of the fact that you know he's written repeatedly as as McCready written to um, the internment camps, and all of his letters get returned without any comment yes. about, you know, he's deceased or anything, they just returned. So that's why there's a, you know, the belief that he's not in the internment camp from McCready. And yeah, the the, the slip-ups and the, the reveals coming from, um, such as the doc particularly, about what they know and what information they have that's different to what the, the story is, mm-hmm. um, comes out yeah. organically, really. Yeah, so... McCready manages to to get some transport from Anne Francis, who is the local mechanic. Yes, interestingly, which is mm. interesting. Forty five, <laughs> but then again, I think that was that was easy to to believe, um, particularly for people at the time. Of course, with um, the war. because yeah. of the fact that a lot of women, particularly during the war years, obviously had taken to to doing what were traditionally man's jobs. Yeah. So that you know that kind of could easily be um, be explained. Yeah, as I say, I, I, there is no need for this character particularly to be here or to be a woman, but she is. She's she's here. I think it's is just the case of like the studios thinking, okay, we need a female character. I'm not sure because this is based on a short story. I'm not sure if that character's actually in the book or whatever. But he heads off to. I think it's called Adobe Flat, isn't it? Is where it, it is. Yeah, Komoko um, was. Um, yeah. Was one, of the less, one of the lesser popular products um, alongside Photoshop. Um, <laughs> yeah, the one that wasn't successful. Yeah. yeah. So uh, yes, and he, he, there's a bit of a contentious thing with with the renting of the jeep. I said to her that she shouldn't have done, but she was, you know, she was in a belief of just getting it over with. But also, this is um, a, her first encounter with him, so she doesn't yeah. know anything about the the conflict that's been going on in the hotel and the sheriff's office and things like that. It's just a stranger in town that wants to pay her $10 yeah. to borrow the Jeep. So, of course, she's going to take it. You know, how much business does that woman do there? You know, it can't be that much. So, yeah, $10 is $10. And McCready ends up at Komoko's homestead, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming it yeah. is. It's, it's, it, it is, yeah. And, it, you know, it's it burnt to the ground and it's just as the only thing left is... is the, the charred remains and, and wildflowers, basically, yeah, um, they, populating they, the scrubland there yeah, now. They focused on that quite a bit, didn't they, in picking up two of the flowers, as if, you know, it just indicates that there's been a, quite a passing of time since this happened, that the flowers... But, as well as that, and there's also the, the, the idea that there is in, in folklore, particularly, that flowers grow better on a, on a grave. Ah. Because, um, you know, the, the, to some extent, you know, it's kind of the nutrients of the body or yeah. the life force of the body inhabiting the, 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 the plants. So flowers growing on a grave is a bit of a a trope. And, and then there's a, a scene where there's a well, the very deep well, because he, he lifts up the lid and drops a stone in and you can see that there's this well which may or may not play a part in the later part of the story. Mm. And we said earlier there's no real sort of set pieces action-wise, but we do get a bit of a car chase. There, there is, yeah, um, and I think I think that was entirely befitting of the, the the plot rather than it being something that is shoehorned in for the sake of it. It, yeah. it entirely works, Ernest Borgnine um, coming coming back into this uh, and and playing the character that he you, you know absolutely <laughs> to a T um, and. The the way in which uh, McCready, the the Spencer Tracy character, reacts to um, basically being run off the road, and then you know the aftermath of that, again, it, it the way he reacts to it by not reacting almost is is even more unsettling for the town. Yeah, he's not put off at all by the intimidation, is he? He's, he's here to to find Kamoko. And, and still at the moment, I don't think we know why, do we? Why he wants to find him. We, no, we don't no. get that reveal until he talks to Robert Ryan a little bit later on. 
as to why he's actually looking for this Japanese guy. So that comes up actually pretty much after this next scene, doesn't it? That Robert Ryan makes an appearance and we, we get the impression that Robert Ryan pretty much runs the town. Robert Ryan is he's, he's quite racist, isn't he? He's definitely anti-Japanese um, because didn't he try to sign up for the army or the marines or something following Pearl Harbor and he yeah, was he, rejected? He or? Tried, he tried, yeah, they couldn't, they wouldn't take him. Um, whether that's to do with, I, I don't think they would say why he didn't get signed up, but he tried a couple of different sort of sign-up stations and they, you know, three of them, they all turned him away and whether it was to do with age, which would be ironic considering that Spencer Tracy was uh, <laughs> and yeah. just returned from the war and he's in his 50s. But yes. yeah, the, the, he's got that animosity towards the Japanese and, and I think also a resentment towards people who um, did fight because he, he didn't. Yeah, because it's at this point I think that Spencer Tracy actually reveals that he lost his arm fighting in Europe, Italy, wasn't it? Italy, it was. Yeah. yeah. Where do we go from here? It's it's, it's still just ongoing. This whole animosity that he's, he's getting nowhere. He's getting. Yeah, nowhere. I think this is where it, there's whether he means to or whether it's just something he's saying to them to 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 delay them. This is, I think, the point where he he says he's going to leave town. And I don't know how much is that because he feels he has to do, actually genuinely is going to leave town or whether he's just making it look like that to, to buy himself some time. I don't know which which way to, to view it. Yeah, because it's at this um, point the doc offers the, the hearse. He says, here, look, he, he takes the cover off the hearse and says, you can get out of town using this. And he says, like, something terrible happened. But we still don't know exactly what it was. He just says, everybody's too frightened to say anything. Just get yourself out of town. No good's going to come of this. And then he tries to send a telegraph. A telegraph doesn't well, he, he tries to phone the police first, yeah. I think, and then he can't get through because he's in the doc's office. And the doc, you know, he's rem- you know, there's a conversation that goes on between him and the doc saying about, you know, let me guess it, the the number's busy. Yeah. Um, and so you know, it's kind of um, leading him to think, you know, it's sort of giving him the clue that there's a conspiracy to stop him from telling them rather than the fact that it just genuinely is busy. That's, that's a, a, a bit of an indicator that might actually push it, push it more towards the fact that he's genuinely deciding to leave town because he's not safe. Yeah. Well, the action certainly hots up and he certainly isn't safe. It literally comes yeah. up after this because Ernest Borgnine comes back into town, tries to pick a fight with him. And we see the most marvelous example of one arm martial arts ever. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> don't pick on a man with one arm because he's going to kill you. <laughs> he, yeah. he takes on Ernest Borgnine. Now, I don't know if that was a stump man that gets flipped over as a somersault, but it certainly looked like Ernest Borgnine as he was flying through the air. Apparently, mm-hmm. I think I read in the trivia, Yeah, Ernest Borgnine goes flying through the door. Yeah. And he's in the you know in the sort of rehearsal or whatever and, and stuff mm. the door was just hinged so he went flying through it and and to then sprawl out and that was it but um unbeknownst to him when they actually did the take yeah uh, they nailed the door shut so when, <laughs> when he crashed into it he took the door with him oh. and, and a shock on his face um which we read as a viewer as as shock that he's that this man has done this to him with just one arm yeah um he's actually shocked um, partially at the fact that that door wasn't meant to come with me. It was meant to be uh, hinged. And, and just, that is apparently um, Ernest doing his own stunts. Wow. Because there's the bit where he, he raises his arm to punch him and he grabs the arm and flips him over in a somersault. Yeah. And that looks like Ernest Borgnine to me. I'm yeah, sure I th- that- I, as I say, I think it is. I mean, mm. the somersault bit, because of the, we, we do have a thing where the, the, the takes are all quite tight and the, the, the tend to... Show all the all a lot of the action is in when it comes to the actual action scenes, it's done singular camera camera rather than it, it cuts in different angles with it. So it's just a, a, a fixed camera shooting the fight rather than it being you know showing it from a few different angles. Yes. So I think it is Ernest Borgnine to be honest um, doing the somersault, which you know might might have got him a, a bronze medal at least in some gymnastics. Uh, <laughs> He's a big guy, you know, to actually yeah, do yeah. that. And and it's at this point I think that he realizes this is it. My time's up here. This is gonna. This has gone too far. 
and he, and he tells Robert Ryan he knows that he killed Komoko, but he's involved everybody else in the town. It wasn't just a one-man job. You know, yeah, and he points out that that's the weakness of it all, that he's relying upon these other people who were, who were weak links in a chain, and that's where it'll come unstuck because he's relying upon them, and at some point they'll let him down. We were saying that there isn't a lot of action in this movie, but we've already had a car chase and a punch-up so far, and we're in about 45 minutes into the movie. Yeah, It's just incredible because it's a very good character study as well. As we're slowly... We're in the dark. We're learning as Spencer Tracy is learning as to what went on. And I like that, that we don't know the story beforehand. I like the fact that we're getting the reveals as they're yeah. happening to him. And, and not to take it off for too much of a tangent, just you saying about In the Dark, mm. I think one of the things that's the, that helps the feeling of noir mm. in this um, is the fact that there's, there's the, the incredibly bright light of the, the outdoor scenes when they're in the blazing sun yeah. of, of, the, of the West um, and then the sort of the, the muted and, and subdued um, indoor scenes where it is darker and, and stuff, that, that contrast in lighting does create that that feeling and particularly since like you said these reveals of the plot and the 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 intensity of the the dialogue a lot of the time um is done a lot more inside rather than outside does give an emphasis to us that there's you know there's there's the foreboding and the the the, how strong the dialogue is to the plot yeah and it's at this point that we actually get the reveal now. I mean, we, we find out that the telegram has not been sent at this point. Yes. Ryan takes the badge off of the sheriff here as well, doesn't he? And pins it on the other guy because he's yeah. just had enough of him being totally useless alcoholic lawman. Yeah, so, which ironically was why he was appointed to the role in the first place. Yeah. Because he was alcoholic and useless and that's what they wanted in a sheriff up until that point. Exactly. So he gives him the sheriff's badge. And then it's at this point we finally find out why MacReady is in town. And the whole premise of it is basically that Komoko's son died saving MacReady's life in Italy and was awarded yeah. a medal posthumously. So what Spencer Tracy wants to do is to give the medal to Komoko, who is the father. Now, basically, we, fi we find out that Komoko had rented his farm from the Robert Ryan character and, yeah. there, and there was no water there. He was conned, wasn't there? there was, he rented this farm yeah. and there was no water. But he dug himself a well. I think he said he went down 60 feet and he found water. And then what happened was, going back to when Robert Ryan was turned down for the army, for medical reasons, whatever it may have been, they all got drunk, the whole of the, the, whole of the town got drunk, and they were going to go and scare him. That's all they were going to do. They were going to go and scare the Japanese guy, Komoko, who barricades himself into the farm and then they set it alight. Yeah, that's it. And then when he came out on fire, Robert Ryan kills him, shoots him. Yeah, and you got to wonder how premeditated that was. Whether mm. he took, whether he told the rest of the guys that they were only going to scare him, but his intention was to kill him, yeah. particularly because he was already aggrieved about what he perceived as his um, that he'd lost out with regards to the piece of land being useless. But as it turned out, it was actually earning a. a uh, money for yeah. him, which you know, for Kamoko. Um, so whether he was premeditated that that along with the being aggrieved against the um, Japanese because of Pearl Harbor and not being able to sign up and do something about that anger, whether he went, went with the intention of killing him but just told the rest of them that they were only going to scare him, yeah, um, is I think it's it's easier to believe that that version of that that rather than him just on the spur of the moment deciding to. To shoot him like you say it's, it's involving all the other other men in the town just to yeah you know spread the blame and he's, he's too scared to do it on his own basically so now obviously all the wheels are set in motion there's no turning back and we get the biggest action sequence at the end of the movie now involves <laughs> involves gasoline again and people being set on fire um i don't want to spoil it too much towards the ending but we have this great sort of shootout and, and fist fight and car chases and stuff like that in the, in the middle of the desert and I don't want to actually reveal the ending I know like the reveal of you know Komoko being dead is probably one one of the big reveals but no spoilers towards the end here let's just say that it all resolves in a way it does and to, um, with some people 
with some people being um, sacrificed by the, the villains of the piece, but also with some people in a different way, sacrificing themselves for doing the right thing. They decide to to, to do the right thing, um, uh, which will have an impact upon the rest of their lives, which you know is kind of seen at the, very briefly at the end. But I think yeah. the the culmination of it towards the end, thankfully, um, it it feels timely, and, yeah. and the shortness of the film it doesn't it, it. And sometimes when we've reviewed older films, particularly and and films that are, are this length. We sometimes feel um, that the endings are a bit rushed or a bit condensed. Yeah. Whereas this one, I feel that, that it's exactly right with the with the timing of it. Yeah, you get the final sort of confrontation bit, the action bit for the resolution, but then there's a further resolution at the end, which is a marvelous little sort of speech that the doc has with Spencer Tracy about Kamoko's medal being used to heal the town as a yes. symbol we've got to try and forget all that's gone on in the last four years and rebuild, a, you know, a new town, a new life and, and hopefully forget about it, you know, but that medal will always be a constant reminder of what went on here. And I thought that was great. That was a nice way to end, to end the movie. Not to read too much into it, but I think that that being, you know, 10 years after this actually being made and released 10 years after the war was finished, yeah. that, not quite contrived, but it was it, that intentional idea of reconciliation, of of forgetting, or um, that people needed to move on and, and heal. It's the healing I think thing. Was, yeah. I, I think it was quite poignant for that to be done in a film that was released when it was released yeah. ten years after the war had finished. Which is, I suppose, why that you know, like we said before about the the Japanese element of it. The you said about the release being over there and first in, yeah. in Japan rather than it being elsewhere and I, I know that the um, the writer got invited over to Japan to to receive a sort of medal of honour for the um, treatment of Japanese people um, or whatever and which I think he remarked was a bit ironic since there's no Japanese people actually featured in the Not film. Not at all, no. It's just talking about you know, <laughs> um, Japanese, you know somebody who, happen, who happens to be Japanese but there, just talk about them as people. Yeah, the the ending is is illustrative of, of you know a certain message, but it's not hammered home. It's just it's it's very much a, a last minute, just an aside. But it's um, fitting as well, isn't it? It's quite yeah, appropriate. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, it's absolutely appropriate, and um, you can see that naturally the the film did lead to that point, rather than it being something that was forced. I've just seen something on wikipedia i mean i know you've looked through some of the trivia stuff on imdb um just before shooting began tracy tried to back out of it and the producers and you know the studio said that if he quit the film they were going to sue him basically what it done it was tracy was quite sort of in the middle of his alcoholism at this point yeah and he refused to give mgm an answer it says here so in order to close the deal an mgm executive contacted tracy and said, don't worry, Mr. Tracy, a copy of the script has been sent to Alan Ladd, and he's agreed to do the picture. The next day, Tracy committed to Bad Day at Black Rock. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Alan Ladd had never even seen the script. So rather than Alan Ladd take over that role, Tracy went, well, bugger it, I'll do it. And it is, like I said, it doesn't seem to me like a major A-list movie. It seems like one of those B-movie, almost black and white noirs that we're used to from 10 years before. Yeah, it's, I think the thing is, it's the, the shortness of it and the sparseness of it, in a way, I think it feels like it's either a, you know, a play or a short story. Um, that's, mm. that's that's the rather than it being like some epic novel sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and I think that's where it comes in that you feel like it's in a it's an aside rather than a main feature in that sense. Yeah. Um, but when you actually watch it, you, you the, the quality screams out. I mean, I, granted. In the hands of different people, this would have been very much a B-movie that would not be something we'd probably be talking about now if it had different cast, oh, yeah. different writer, different direction. It, it wouldn't. Quality writer that took this on to put to the screenplay, it was, the direction obviously was, was uh, incredible um, hands for that to be in. And every single cast member, uh, you know, just does, does the job to 
to the nth degree to make sure it's exactly what needs to be portrayed. Mm. And that makes it a film that isn't a B-movie, which it would have been in other, other hands. If any of those elements hadn't been there, to be honest, I think it would have slipped. Yeah. All the ingredients being correct has made it. It's a, yeah. it's, it is a, a film of renown, and I think I think it's one of the most one of the most shown films in the in the, the White House. Apparently, according to the projectionist ever. records, isn't and it? Was, yeah. And that was something I, I, I remember reading a while back. Yeah. Where the trivia went before Christmas when we were going to gonna do it and mm. then didn't get around to it. So uh, there's bits and pieces I'm remembering partially or, or fully. Mm-hmm. But yeah, absolutely. It's, 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 it's received that status and I think it's deserved, but it could quite easily have not been if... if you know, something had gone slightly awry with who was involved in it, I think. Yeah, you're saying about the elements, right? Say, for example, it wasn't in widescreen, it was in black and white, and Alan Ladd was, you know, the lead character. It would probably work more as a film noir type B movie, and, and it would still have that same effect. You could still see it, but what they've done is they've taken the gamble on, okay, Spencer Tracy, Cinemascope, Andre Previn's score, Technicolor, all singing, all dancing. We've got the hottest property in Hollywood, Mr. Borgnine, as, as one of the minor characters. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> amazing, yeah. And, and it works. It absolutely works. On my rating system on Letterboxd, I was going to give it four stars. And just before I committed myself to pushing that button, I thought, you know what, I can't find anything wrong with this to, to take a star away. I'm not saying it's perfect, but it's a five-star movie, if you know how my thinking works when I do yes, the ratings. Yes, I understand system. that entirely, yeah. As I say, I only watched it three years ago. It was the perfect length of time in between viewings for me to appreciate more and spot a few things in there that I hadn't seen previously. And it just reinforces my, my newfound love for Spencer Tracy, as well as everybody else in the, in the sort of fledgling stages of their careers as well. But Borgnine in particular and Lee Marvin standouts for me uh, as well as Spencer Tracy now your bizarre rating system well not bizarre yeah. your unique rating system All right let's go yeah well I've I've so caveat being there as usual if somebody thinks this is definitely not their thing then that's that's just there's no point in trying to persuade them but <laughs> yeah. uh, everybody else this this is a film that I think people should go out their way to see you know it doesn't have to necessarily be seen at the cinema mm-hmm. and we've had our own discussions about the merits of watching things in cinema <laughs> due to other audience members but this is something i think people should should search out it's not don't have to stay it's welcome so there's not it's not a chore to slog your way through so I, people won't feel like they've if they don't quite take to it like because they've wasted much time but i do think it's a, a film of such quality and because it also like you said there's got some people who were at the tail end of their their careers, and also some other people who became iconic that were, were at the start of their careers, really yeah. on screen. Yeah. Well, start have been the uh, start have been stars. Yes. Yeah. They, uh, they've they've got done f- things before, but this, yeah. this is the start of them being stars. It's it's a film that has a lot of elements in it as far as the mystery and the conf- you know the trying to work out what actually has happened. So it's got the dialogue in there to actually carry you through and 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 keep you involved i think it's a film that pe- people do need to search out and uh, make an effort to see because you know, this is is part of cinema history and there's i think there'll be a lot of people who have made films um that have been influenced by by this as a, as a tight dialogued small cast film that breaks through into being um you know epic status as far as how it's regarded couldn't have said it better myself mate it's I'm so glad you chose this because I needed to get the stinking paws back into some sort of classic era Hollywood vein. Do you know there are other 50s movies? There are certainly throughout the 30s and 40s we could have picked. I don't think it gets spoken about enough. Like I say, Spencer Tracy, although he's well regarded, I don't think there is that discussion about Spencer Tracy that he deserves. Absolutely. And I would anybody to seek this out, mate, to be honest. Yeah, and you know, and I know that there's there was a certain thing with Stinking Paws early on that you know there was a, it was very heavily either fifties or seventies seventies for, uh, yeah. for the eras mm. um, absolutely and I mean you know particularly with the fifties ones that particularly means that um, you know you you're watching people who are who are no longer appearing in films <laughs> yeah of course they, they've gone yeah. now um, you know they've usually not only stopped acting but they're usually you know dead really yeah, long gone I mean, yes I mean, yeah. I mean, Every everybody apart from one of this cast is 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 dead. 
you know, the, the 70s was a bit different because there's still some of the people like, you know, De Niro and, and such that were, yeah. you know, he's they're still appearing in, in their 80s much, now you know. sort of thing. Yeah. Um, mm. And they're recognised more commonly as being um, icons of cinema. But this this revives um, some of the notice of, of people like Lee Marvin and Spencer Tracy and, and such that they, they deserve recognition. And this film is a is a perfect window to, to shop their talents, as it were, yeah. and um, it is key into what the, the the ethos of Stinking Paws was when it, it started. I, I, I'm happy with that. Excellent. Well, keeping that in mind, now, you have agreed to appear quite regularly on the show. You know, in between our Real Britannia recordings on a Sunday morning, we're going yeah. to slot in one of these. Yeah, every sort of like third or fourth week. So... Hold tight, mate. We're going to take a little break and I will let you know what we're going to be talking about in about a month's time. And now, preview time. When it comes to entertainment, you can't beat a good film. So let's take a look at what's coming your way. Okay, Stephen, next time that you're with us, let's just give the audience a little bit of a, a rundown of what's going on this episode is obviously going to be released within sort of seven days of us recording it we're talking early to mid january commitments mean that liam's not available for a little while but i'm meeting up with paul next weekend so after this episode paul and i are going to record two shows uh which is a change to the advertised American History X, King's Speech, and Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I'll be doing those with Liam and Paul at some point in February. Paul and I, we've got two episodes coming up. One is going to be The Bone Collector, which is the Denzel Washington movie with Angelina Jolie, 1999, which was Paul's choice. And for Paul, I've selected Best Picture Winner, Kramer vs. Kramer. Take him out of his comfort zone a little bit. He said it's not specifically one that he would have chosen, and I've said, I think, once you get into it, I think you're going to like it. Because he does appreciate good acting and a good story. And I, I like Kramer versus Kramer, and I think he needs to see it. So they're the next two episodes that are coming up. When we meet again, my choice for you. We've been talking all morning about Golden Age of Hollywood. And it's quite surprising that in just over 200 movie reviews... This guy has not cropped up very often. And also, I'm going back to that golden year in 1939 that we spoke about when we reviewed Only Angels Have Wings, which was the year, again, as we said, of Stagecoach, Wizard of Oz, Gone with the Wind, Ninochka, um, Mr. Chips, you know, all all of those. There's one on that list that I haven't mentioned, and it stars my favourite actor, Mr. Jimmy Stewart. And one of my favourite directors, Frank Capra, we're going to do Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Oh, wonderful. Have you seen it? Yeah. I have, but I haven't seen it recently. I no, think it nor have I. Been, I think it's probably been 10 years at least. Yeah, since probably for me. Yeah, I bought a Blu-ray copy just before Christmas. So it'll be interesting to see it on. I'm going to probably pop it on the projector, watch it on a bigger, bigger screen as I can. It's going to be a case of one of those films that we're going to both watch, and I can sort of predict our comments on this, that we're going to go, why has it taken us so long to watch this again? Why do we not watch this movie every year, I think? Yeah. Yeah, because as well as Jimmy Stewart, you've got Gene Arthur, I think, Cla- is it Claude Rains is in this one, isn't he, because he's the senator? Uh, yes. Yes, uh, I, think it's Cla- I think it's Claude Rains. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right there. Claude Rains, I've just found the IMDb page. Thomas Mitchell who starred with him in It's Wonderful Life's in it. Beulah Bondi, who played his mother about 400 times, I think. H.B. Warner, who was in It's Wonderful Life with him. Harry Carey's in... Wow. There's an actor called Grant Mitchell as well. Grant Mitchell. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, leave it out, Phil. Yeah, we'll see what that one's all about. Right, so that's when we're thinking pause episode. I'm I'm liking this. Let's get back into some classic classics. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite happy to come on. It's a, it's a pleasure for me to be able to come on and, and talk about it. I do enjoy our Real Britannia, um, you know, regularity and, and all the films we have to delve into that. But it is occasionally I do sort of um, remember some film and it's usually when I'm listening when I'm listening to a stinking pause. Yeah. I'll remember some film that is outside of the the British uh, box. Yep. And I just think, 
Oh, that would be a really good one to review. And and now I've got an opportunity to actually suggest them and, and talk about them myself with you. Can I just um, ask you? So have, that's beautiful. Have really. you got a little list of potential movies like you did with Real Britannia, which developed into a list of about 200? Have I you... may have a list of a, a dozen or so, yes. <laughs> I expect nothing less from you, my friend. Thank you. Uh Stephen, thank you so much for being here this morning, mate. It's always a pleasure. It's absolutely my pleasure, yes. Take care, mate. I'll see you in a couple of weeks' time. You too. Take care. The management of this theatre suggests that for the greater entertainment of your friends who have not yet seen the picture, you will not divulge to anyone the secret of the ending. Astronauts, that that infernal jamboree is worse than two cats on a fence. You dudes get lost now, you hear? Good night, ladies. When you feel down, try positive thinking. That's what I told the man said. Don't wear a frown. Try positive thinking. Laugh at your troubles instead. You've got to look on the bright side. On hope, so much depends. With your confidence sinking, positive thinking. Helps you on the way, my friend. When things look black, try positive thinking. Treat every season as spring. No glancing back. Try positive thinking. Trust what tomorrow may bring. This crazy world that we live in will keep on spinning round. But with good, strong, positive thinking. We'll get together and life won't let us down. Shut up, you ugly bitch. Oh, shut up. We enjoy it.